Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This segment is being pre-recorded for Saturday, March 28th, 2020. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us once again, addressing Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? And this is part seven of a series which I'm starting to think may be at least a dozen parts. I don't know. We'll know only as we actually progress through his book. I'm going to subtitle this, I believe, Evil, Good, or Wicked, because as we see, evil can be good or it can be wicked. Yahweh, our God, actually uses the evil which men perpetrate in order to effect his good. He has control of both good and evil. Truthfits, thank you for being here with me once again. Hello, Bill. It's great to be back again. Uh, yeah, just from last week, it's amazing what you can learn just from the grammar and the way the wording is. If you really just take your time, have a bit of patience, and just go for it word by word, that you can see that you can get completely different meanings. And uh, in terms of, um, you know, all the authority, which we're going to go over today, a lot of people really struggle with that to know that Yahweh is always in control and that if bad things are going on in your life, maybe that's how Yahweh wants them. And a lot of people, you know, especially the pagans will call you cucks if you're, um, you know, submit to authority and go along with it. And um they will try and push you to rise up, especially like the crypto Jews. They often will do that and try to um, trick us into going against the authority when we must realize that Yahweh is always in control at the end. Well, well right. And, and pagans, the might is right crowd, right? The might is right crowd. They believe that might is right. And then they complain about being ruled over by Jews. Where's this hypocrisy in that? There's some serious hypocrisy in that. Because the Jews must therefore be right. I, I mean, the, the concept that mine is right is addressed in the scriptures. And the lesson is that might is not right. What God deems is lawful is right. And that means that we as a race should look out for each other and not trample over one another should care for the weaker among our brethren rather than push them aside. It, it's might is not right. Might does not make right. And, and the, for those who insist that might is right, well, they should look at whether or not they're really in control of their own lives today or if somebody else is ruling over them. Here we shall continue our address of chapter three of Charles Weissman's book, which is simply titled The Serpent. As I had said before we began this endeavor in our last presentation, because this is probably the most important chapter in his book, we may present and address every single paragraph so that none of our detractors can claim we purposely missed anything which they may then imagine that we can't answer. Because we certainly can answer each and every um, 
point which Weissman raises in objection to two seed line. And, and I believe we have answered them all many times at our work in Christagenia. But doing it from Weissman's perspective, we're able, I think, to answer and address some things that we wouldn't normally address. Like you said, going over um, every point of grammar and understanding the Hebrew grammar and the Greek grammar and, and what's really being said, being able to distinguish between the way certain words were used, that, that's important. And it takes a long time to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, a lot of people just don't have the patience for that. And because of that, they can easily be tricked by someone who's, you know, good with words and can, you know, tickle their ears and say something. And, and you've got to be prepared to just spend the time uh, to read through it carefully. Well, well right. And, and wow. I don't know how to start explaining this, but if you're going to read the Bible once or twice or three times, you could read the King James Version ten times. You're never really going to get the details of the story. You're relying on other men's translations, and men make mistakes all the time. In order to truly understand the scriptures, you need to dig into the original languages and that's just the way it is. If you're a um, denominational Baptist pastor or if you're a Roman Catholic priest, you may have had a couple of Greek courses at the, at the seminary, but you don't really understand Greek with a couple of Greek courses. It takes many years of study to thoroughly understand and thoroughly um, be able to translate properly the scriptures otherwise you're just going along with some denominations doctrine and a lot of those doctrines are corrupted that's why we have so many different denominations because they're practically and i could say they are all corrupted in some way or another and we call ourselves christian identity in, in order to express our um philosophy how we feel about scripture and history but Christian identity is not a denomination, and neither do we want to be one. At the beginning of his chapter on the serpent, we have already discussed most of the points made by Charles Weissman, where he had presented a list of uses of the words Satan and devil as they are found throughout the scriptures. His biggest mistake, in my opinion, was his failure to distinguish between these words, where they appear as simple nouns or adjectives, or where they appear as a substantive along with a definite article. The word diabolos is an adjective, which can mean slanderer. But when it appears with a definite article, it is used as a noun to describe a particular slanderer. Then, where the definite article appears with the noun, a noun like Satan or Satanus, it is referring to a known, particular instance of the given noun, rather than to just any instance. In other words, Satan, or a Satan, without the definite article, describes anyone who, at one point or another, may be an adversary. And we do this in English, right? I mean, during World War II, when somebody mentioned the enemy, 
the enemy, the enemy. They were talking about Germans during the Cold War. When somebody talked about the enemy, the enemy, they were talking about Russians. So we've done the same thing. We, we, in that historical context, when you keep mentioning the enemy, the enemy, the enemy, everybody knows the enemy. It's the same thing in the Bible. It's not just Satan. It's the Satan, the Satan, the Satan. So we have to stop and ask ourselves. And the New Testament tells us who that Satan is, that it's a collective of, of a particular people. So... While anyone at one point or another may be an adversary, the Satan with the definite article describes a particular and already known entity which is an adversary. Weissman exploited his examples of the use of these words by not explaining that difference. So thus far in his arguments in this chapter, Weissman has lied by omission. So where we left off, we will repeat the last item in Weissman's list of examples because we did not discuss it sufficiently. His list of examples of the way the devil and Satan are, are used throughout scripture. The last item is oppressive governmental authorities are the devil. And this too is a lie. And he cited, and we'll get to these scriptures, he cited Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. I don't think that I wrote any address of Revelation 2, 10 into my notes, but we will address that as well. Oppressive governmental authorities are the devil. That is a lie, because it is an oversimplification. First, the children of Israel had sinned collectively. When, as it is described in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they demanded a king, but they were to have no governmental authority at all. Yahweh God was their king, but they insisted on an earthly king. So, Yahweh told them that they had rejected him as king, and therefore they would suffer under earthly kings. Now, that suffering was not a decree of punishment. Rather, Yahweh was only telling them what the natural outcome of their decision was going to be. However, oppressive governmental authorities by themselves are not the devil. What Yahweh told the children of Israel would happen to them under a king had happened under Saul, under David, under Solomon, and under all their successors. But David and Solomon were not devils, and neither were their governments. Because the children of Israel sinned, after they were put off in punishment in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, it was then prophesied, especially in Daniel, that they would be punished for a fixed period of time and suffer under oppressive governments. One of those oppressive governments would be Assyria, another Babylon, another Persia, another that of the Greeks, and finally 
the government of the Romans. Other prophecies in Daniel describe what would happen later after the passing of Rome. Yet Cyrus, the king of Persia, while he was a part of one of those beast empires prophesied by Daniel, Cyrus was nevertheless described as a man more precious than fine gold by Yahweh himself in Isaiah chapter 13. And the man more precious than gold in Isaiah chapter 13 is with all certainty a reference to Cyrus, the king of Persia. Then, in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, we read where Yahweh is first referring to himself, speaking of Cyrus, speaking of himself, he mentions himself in a pronoun, that saith of Cyrus. In other words, it is God speaking of Cyrus. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built. We're in the period where Jerusalem had been torn down or, or was going to be torn down. And it would be Cyrus who first decreed its rebuilding. Even though it wasn't rebuilt in Cyrus's lifetime, Cyrus made the initial decrees after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So Isaiah is writing at a time where it's not even destroyed yet by the Babylonians. But Isaiah prophesied that also. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loosen the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And the gates were a reference to the gates of the ancient famous city of Babylon that Cyrus would conquer the gates, the, the city. And when there's two different accounts of the conquering of Babylon, but the Persians took Babylon, which was thought to be impregnable, they took it very easily. And without tearing the walls of the city down, the gates were open to Cyrus. About 200 years after Isaiah wrote this prophecy, now, Cyrus conquered Babylon, as it says in Isaiah chapter 45. He subdued many of the other surrounding nations, and he later died in his attempt to conquer the Scythians to the north, who were certainly a great number of the children of Israel in captivity. That's how the people later called Scythians were first formed. All of the nations which became subject to him or who fought with him, would certainly have considered him to be an oppressor. But the word of God considered him to be anointed by God, a man more precious than gold who would serve the will of Yahweh. This is only one more example where a so-called oppressive governmental authority is certainly not the devil. And once again, Charles Weissman is exposed to be a 
blatant liar. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, Paul of Tarsus described how governments serve the will of God as he uses them to punish disobedient men. In the providence of God, even wicked governments are tools employed by him. As Paul explains it, governments, whether they are good or wicked at any particular time, are serving the purposes of God himself to punish the wicked or to reward the good, even if the rewards are not immediately perceived. So, earthly governments were ordained by God because the children of Israel had abandoned him and sought an earthly king, but that does not mean that governments in general can be considered as the devil, as we have seen governments which God himself considered to be good, governments which he formed to do his will. Weissman cited Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where he said here that oppressive governmental authorities are the devil. But we must ask once again, did Paul actually write what Weissman concluded in this statement? In the King James Version, those verses read, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. A precursory reading immediately reveals that Paul did not say that we wrestle against high places, but that we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul did not say that we wrestle against rulers, but against the rulers of the darkness of this world. There is a difference between oppressive government and wicked men who introduce evil into government. So in Revelation chapter 2, Weissman cited verse 10, but he did not cite verse 9. He totally ignored that one. He wanted to cite verse 10 in order to somehow prove his point that oppressive governments are evil, and that's not what the passage is saying. This is a message of Christ unto the church in Smyrna, He's writing this, John is writing this message about 90 to 96 AD when he wrote the Revelation and probably in a later portion of that period, probably 94, 95, 96 AD, somewhere right around that time. The message says in part, I know thy works. Now this is Christ himself talking. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich because we don't always see what our blessings are or what our riches are. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews, or properly Judeans, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. 
Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So, there's two things going on here. First, there are Judeans, and this is the passage which Weissman omitted. There are Judeans, and Judean is a national designation. It's a designation of citizenship, and all the citizens of this particular province follow the religion of the province. It is a designation of citizenship of a, of a province in which people had generally followed a particular religion, which is the religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But the proper Judeans were the original people of the tribe of Judah that returned and rebuilt Jerusalem 500 years sooner, and only a small portion of the tribe of Judah had returned, only about 42,000 people. And they rebuilt the city, and they went out, and they conquered the Edomites and the Canaanites who were in the area, and they forced them all to convert to Judaism. Okay, so we have Jews that are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. If you're a true Judean, and you're an apostate, are you still a Judean? Of course you are. You, you would not be considered not a Judean. If you go back into the Old Testament, Israelites that were disobedient or apostate were still Israelites. They were never not Israelites any longer. You can't find one instance of that in Scripture. A member of the tribe of Judah was always of Judah. Just because he sinned doesn't mean he wasn't of Judah during his period of sin. So, there must be people in Judea that are not really of Judah, but are of the synagogue of Satan, and here they're being considered devils. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. When we look all throughout the early history of the persecution of Christians, the Jews were instigating the Romans to persecute Christians. The devil. This proves to seed line, once you understand it, it doesn't mean that the government is the devil. There's nowhere in here that it says the government is the devil. Evil forces. It's always the Jews who infiltrate and gain control of the government. Absolutely. And, they do and use the their time. political power and money to influence it. And, and there's evidence that Jews, that certain Jews were very close to Caesar Nero. And, and that he was persuaded to persecute Christians by them. It, it's clear in the days of Claudius in Rome that the first persecution of Christians, when they were all expelled from Rome, was because of Jewish agitators in Rome. And when I say Jewish in that context, I mean Judeans who had denied Christianity and became known as the people that we now call Jews. They weren't really Judah. They weren't really 
Israel, and and that's explained over and over again in the in the New Testament, <clears throat> and it's also fully evident in the histories of Josephus and the books of the prophets. That's besides the point. These people were claiming yeah. to be Judah. They were not Judeans. They were claiming to be Judeans, and they were not because they must have been Edomites and Canaanites, and the alternative to not being a Judean is being of the synagogue of Satan, the assembly. A synagogue is simply an assembly. It's actually a Greek word. It's not a Jewish word at all. Synagoge is a compound Greek word that simply means with those who are led to an assembly ground. To It, it comes from three Greek words, the word sun, which is a, a preposition that means with, and the word ago, which is a verb which means to lead, and the word geis, which means land or ground. So you're being led with others to the assembly ground. That, that's to the ground where, where, where people are accustomed to meeting. That's kind of what the word means. It's a Greek word. It's not Jewish. We think of synagogue as a Jewish word. They adopted a Greek word. So it's the assembly of Satan is how I would translate it. And that makes sense. They really do congregate and have secret meetings and plot and scheme to destroy us. It, right. The other races, you know, Satan, but the ones at the top, it's the Jews. It's always them, the, the assembly and meeting of Satan. Well, well right. It, it's Satan all throughout history in, in their synagogues. They've assembled to plot against Christianity. That's what they've done. That there's no substance to their religion. Yeah. None whatsoever. It's all a pretense. They have not, by their own admission, and, and I believe I pointed this out in, in a podcast last week. I think it was John, though. It was my John presentation. By their own admission, they have not made any blood sacrifices since the destruction of the first temple, which proves that they, they've been phony all along. Now they twirl chickens over their heads to, to get rid of their sins, to pass their prayer to the chicken. That to, they say a prayer and twirl the chicken over their heads, and they believe they're passing their sin to the chicken, and the chicken becomes guilty of their sin, and they destroy the chicken. Now, where is that in the Old Testament? Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> They're not practicing. They just make it religion. up. Yeah, they just came up with this crazy. That that's like some African ritual. It sounds like it, it's it's not Christianity and it's yeah. not Hebrew. There's none of that in the scriptures. Yeah, and um. And also what happens with people, you know, Judea, people see that in, you know, our modern countries as well. There was a time when if you said you were English, you actually were an Englishman or French was a Frenchman and Swedish was a Swedish. But now it's all over the place. You know, you got niggers calling themselves English and Pakis calling themselves English and Jews calling themselves Germans and Americans. It's exactly the same thing that happened back then. That's what happens when you let them in uh, amongst your people, that they begin to 
uh, dissolve that nationalism and it just becomes whoever wants to be, you know, this nationality or this nationality. Anyone can be an Englishman. Well, well right. And that's exactly what happened to Judea. And, and that's exactly what happened to Rome. And, and that's exactly what happened to ancient Athens. If, if you read, um, at, at first, the only men who could be citizens in ancient the ancient Athenian democracy were born Athenian men who, who were of the blood of the Ionian race at Athens. And they became citizens. And and if they were landholders, they could participate in, in the democracy by voting and things like that. And Thucydides had written, I forget exactly where it is, but he wrote about the people that were buying themselves onto the roles of citizenship in Athens and, and how bloated the citizenship roles became because of that, because of interlopers and intruders. So, I mean, it's not new. It, it's not anything novel, but it's spelled out very clearly in Flavius Josephus that these Edomites were, that, that the people that returned to Jerusalem in 520 B.C., by the middle of the second century B.C., 350 years later, had become, um, because of the oppression of the Seleucids, the rulers, the Greek rulers of Syria, and the Ptolemies, who were the Greek rulers of Egypt, and because of their being tugged back and forth and caught up between wars between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, that when the Seleucids had tried to oppress them and destroy their temple and religion, they became very militantized and actually grew quite strong militarily. And in a few short years, they were able to overthrow the Seleucids, the Greek rulers of Syria, and keep their independence for about 100 years until the coming of the Romans when, when they were defeated by, by Rome. Well, during that 100-year period, and this is detailed in the pages of Flavius Josephus, and this was, absolute, at, that this was eventually also their downfall that caused them to become subject to the Romans. Um, during a hundred year period, they had at first driven out the Edomites and other Canaanites who had occupied their ancient cities. And when that failed, and because they didn't have numbers large enough to hold all those cities, what they started doing in 130 BC was forcibly converting those cities to Judaism and offering them peace as long as they got circumcised and called themselves Judeans. And that's where the Jews came from. They are the ancient enemies of the Israelites, the Edomites and the mixed race, and the Edomites are Canaanites themselves. They were mixing with the Canaanites for a thousand years. So they are these cursed people who were cursed by God whom the Israelites were supposed to kill them all and failed. And eventually those Edomites and Canaanites became the Judeans. So today they claim to be Israelites and they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. And when they also take in um, the women and children, like sometimes if, if they rejected, you know, they said, no, we're not going to convert to Judaism. 
they would still take the women and children. So yeah, even right. if they married one and raised a child and tried to make them good, it would all be a disaster anyways. Right. Just like these Baptist families today are adopting niggers and trying to raise them civilized and, and white, and, and it's becoming a disaster for them. Same thing. It's the same thing all over again. The shades are a little more contrasting. We never learn. But no, we never learn. Never. So, so writing the epistle to the Ephesians, about two years after Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, Paul was not contradicting himself. Weissman interprets Ephesians in a way that makes Paul contradict himself in Romans. And Weissman did the same thing when he quoted Colossians, and, and we discussed this, I think, last week or the week before. Weissman quoted Colossians, taking Paul's words out of context and twisting them into his own meaning, which means that Paul would have had to contradict himself with his epistle to the Ephesians. Weissman constantly interprets Paul, the words of Paul of Tarsus in a way that makes Paul contradict himself when we look at other passages in Paul's works. So is Paul self-contradictory or is Weissman lying and, and has an agenda? We can't make Paul contradict himself. Paul did not say that government was the devil. Otherwise, Paul was contradicting himself with his statements in Romans chapter 13, where he said, let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. In other words, if there is a world empire that we're all subject to, or a king that we're subject to, that was an ordination of God. If it wasn't from God, it wouldn't be. So whether it's good or bad in our eyes, God is using that entity for his purpose. The powers that be are ordained of God. Paul was not contradicting himself. Paul was teaching that earthly rulers were ordained by God, but that God-fearing Christians should not be in fear of those earthly rulers. If you fear God, you have nothing to fear from the government as long as you're obedient to God. And Peter taught virtually the same thing in fewer words, where he said in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. If you trust in God, you're going to know that everything is ultimately in God's hands and that these earthly governments are being used by God to punish people that do not understand that. Peter, that this passage in Peter is often misinterpreted because they say, oh, Peter mentioned a king, not an emperor. But Peter mentioned a king in that passage and not an emperor because, as the end of this epistle demonstrates, Peter was writing in Babylon 
to Mesopotamians who were under the rule of the Parthians. They weren't under the rule of Rome. They had their own king, the king of the Parthians. So Christ had also said in that same spirit and speaking in Judea, which was ruled by the Romans, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. But at the same time, writing those lines in Ephesians, Paul was teaching that God-fearing Christians would resist evil within government by keeping obedience to God. That's what Paul was teaching in Ephesians. That's also what he was teaching in Romans. And that's what Peter was teaching in chapter 2 of his first epistle. So it is not oppressive governmental authorities, which are the devil, but it is certain men who come to power within government who are often devils, or even men who have the power to control entire governments. As a particular devil offered to Christ in Luke chapter 4, where we read, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world, the world meaning that particular society, not the whole planet, in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. So we see that world governments are often in the pocket of the devil, but world governments are not the devil by themselves. So Weissman is lying again. However, Weissman proceeds... Yeah, and, and most governments... I'm sorry, sorry. go on. No, go I was on. just going to say, most governments originally started off good, you know, or at least they tried to be good, but they were always eventually corrupted. You look at any kingdom, you know, like the, the Cyrus we, you just mentioned, he originally tried to establish, you know, a good kingdom, and Alexander and, you know, the Romans, but it all gradually got corrupted. So you see, it is these devils who gradually bring everything down. Well, well, right. Even the Roman Empire, if you really study um, Livy and the history of Rome and, and the earlier historians like um, Polybius, for example, yeah, you'll see that the Roman Empire, while they picked wars with, with the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians had the Western Mediterranean locked up for hundreds of years. And the Romans wanted to break that Phoenician power at sea, and ultimately they did. And I'm not going to say that the wars with the Phoenicians were entirely just. They certainly weren't. But that, that's just natural competition between two different nations of two different languages and two different competing interests, even though they were both white nations and, and ultimately had the same origins. Rather, the Romans began their empire in the east when the various Greek city-states had been fighting one another for hundreds of years since the end of the Persian Wars and the beginning of the Peloponnesian Wars. And if you study the Peloponnesian Wars, you'll find that the Persians constantly instigated the wars between Sparta and Athens. 
and, and the other Greek city-states. Um, Sparta and Athens had, had um, beat each other down so much in 100 years' time after the Persian Wars that the Thebans actually defeated the Spartans, which would have been unheard of before then. And Thebes rose for a short time to have the hegemony of Greece. And, and that's a whole different story. But anyway, these Peloponnesian Wars, the Greeks beat each other down, and there were a lot of artificial periods of peace that always fell back into war throughout the subsequent history of the 4th, 3rd, and 2nd centuries in Greece. And these Greek city-states started to appeal to Rome because Rome was becoming powerful in Italy and subjecting the surrounding states to Roman rule, the Greek city-states constantly sent embassies to the Romans asking the Romans to resolve their disputes. So the Romans just stepped in and said, well, okay, we're going to rule over you too. And, and that started the Macedonian Wars, and there were several, I think there were three Macedonian Wars before the Macedonians were finally defeated by Rome. But the Greek city-states were constantly at war with each other and appealing to Rome to settle their disputes. So if you're going to keep, if, if you live next door to me and you keep fighting with your wife and your wife and, and you keep coming to me at several times to, to help me to get my help with your disputes, I'm going to rule your household. That's the natural, that, that's the natural outcome. I'm going to be the ruler of your household because you can't keep your act together. That's what happened with Rome and the Greeks. It, it's so the Roman Empire, uh, I mean, the, the Roman Empire, when I say Roman Empire in that sense, I don't mean the period of emperors. Rome really became an empire during the time of the Roman Republic. And every republic that turns itself into an empire, like the so-called American Republic, is eventually going to be ruled by an emperor. That, that's also inevitable. So we're on our way down that path. We're already on that path. The president has become like an emperor. The Roman Republic became an empire. And at first, Rome's intentions were good. It was playing peacemaker to the world and, and, and settling the disputes among the Greeks. And ultimately, it turned to evil. It was subverted and, and abused. It became a beast. So, yes, you're right in, in, in that aspect. that They're all inevitable paths that we never avoid. And, and every government thinks that it could do better and ends up on the same track. We could talk about that forever. Yeah, right? Yahweh's showing us that the only true government is with him ruling over us. It's the and, only possible way, the only fair way, the only and, righteous way that right. we'll learn in the end. Absolutely. I, I mean, the American Union started out. Um, it was founded by Christian men, a whole collection of for, for to to the greatest part, Christian men. I mean, ninety five percent of them or more were devout Christians. It started out as as a union of Christian men who tried to create documents whereby they could all cooperate together, that their different sovereign states could all cooperate together. And the first document was shot full of holes, and the second document 
that the Articles of Confederation had major flaws. The Constitution has major flaws. They didn't even defend the Union from itself so, so, or from outside interlopers. And, and we've been beset with them, right? They're called Jews. They're the same people that did Roman and did Judea in and did the Greeks in and did in every empire before them. It, it's, it, it's another thing that's inevitable. When people it's rule, what they do, it's their nature. Yeah, when people pretend to rule themselves without God, gold always becomes the king. And, and the Jews knew that, and, and that's what they wrote into the protocols 200 years ago. So, so what, what do we see now? We see the exact outcome of that. Okay, we're way off track, but this is the natural progression and, and degression of, of nations. Weissman, we finish with Weissman's list of examples of how the words the devil and Satan are used in scripture. And he proceeds as if at least most of his assertions could not be challenged, while we have challenged and discredited nearly all of them, either by showing why they are not relevant to the issue or by demonstrating that they prove our point and not his. So he concludes, and he says, though a few of these usages may be debatable, most are not. The point is that the words devil or Satan are obviously not given one single meaning, usage, or identity throughout Scripture. But that is how Christendom has interpreted and used these words. Christians have used them to always mean a supernatural, godlike, invisible entity that causes evil, problems, and tribulation upon man. This is also the concept employed by adherents of the satanic seedline doctrine, since that doctrine requires the existence of a supernatural, satanic being. And Weissman is correct that denominational Christendom and the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches have traditionally interpreted these words as he describes. They do. We don't. They also often fail to distinguish the adjective and noun forms of these words from their use as a substantive or a proper noun. Many early two-seed-line teachers followed these same mistakes, but that is not our fault, and of course, we believe the two-seed-line is true, that satanic seed-line is true, but we differ from them in many ways. Recognizing the instances where the adjective is used as a substantive and where the nouns accompanied by a definite article are used as a proper noun, Specifying a particular entity, it is necessary to determining how these words were actually intended to be understood by the authors of our scriptures. If Weissman did understand those uses, which I doubt because he only seems to have known Greek and Hebrew words from concordances and a couple of lexicons, but if he did understand them, then he must have purposely ignored it for his purposes in this book. Even if we understand that there are tangible devils and a tangible Satan, we do not misinterpret these words. In the manner in which Weissman describes, 
we do not think that the terms devil or Satan always mean a supernatural, godlike, invisible entity that causes evil, problems, and tribulation upon man. In fact, we don't think that those terms ever mean that. Although from our scriptures, we must believe that there were certain entities called demons, which are disembodied wicked spirits, we do not rely on disembodied spirits for any aspect of our two seed line belief. None. Rather, we believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a race, or actually what we would call today races, of so-called people who are physically descended from another race, an original race called fallen angels. Why they're called fallen angels in the scripture, we don't know, but that's what they are referred to as. They are labeled by the scripture, fallen angels, the angels that left their first estate. And the collective of those people are Satan and the devil. The word Satan is a collective word, just like during World War II, Englishmen said the enemy, the enemy, the enemy. Did they mean one particular German or the entire collective of Germans? Did they mean just Adolf Hitler or did they mean all the German National Socialists? After the war, they treated every German as an enemy, whether or not they, the, the English army didn't say, hey, are you a National Socialist? And shoot them if they said yes. They shot at all the Germans. So it didn't matter. If you were German, you were the enemy. You were a part of the collective enemy. Now, they never said the enemies, the enemies, the enemy. I mean, sometimes in certain contexts when they were referring to Germany and Italy, but usually all they had to write was the enemy. And that's what they wrote, the enemy. And that could describe the fascist nations. It could describe Germans and Italians. It, it could even describe more than that because other nations were allied with Germany as well. So it, it's the way we use our language is still the way it was used in the Bible, where Satan often described a collective enemy. All the power of Satan described all of Satan's descendants in the world, all of the people that descended from these fallen angels in the world. While Adamic yeah, man... has always been the same enemy from the beginning to now, hasn't it? Well, well, right. It was always the same enemy because who made the English and Germans enemies? Adolf Hitler was fighting world Jewish supremacy. He was fighting the international bankers who had looted and pillaged Germany through the Versailles Peace Conference <laughs> and, and, and the, draconian mess, the draconian measures, the very oppressive measures that Germany was subject to for a war that Germany never started. Germany never started the First World War, the Great War. In fact, the English bankers also instigated that through treacherous means. The same gang of crooks and criminals who call themselves English and are really all Jews. They started the First World War, and, and when Hitler had rebelled against them, 
by denouncing and repudiating the um, the Versailles Treaty, then they knew that they had to destroy Hitler, and they had to destroy Germany, and that's exactly what they did. We believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a race, and, and they're among us today, and they've always been among us. They are the wheat and the tares of the parable of the wheat and the tares. They are the other races who God did not create in the Bible. You won't find Negroes and Chinamen in the creation account of the Bible. And some people try to squeeze them in as beasts, or they try to squeeze them in as a different Adamic creation or creation of man. None of that is scriptural. None of it ever adds up. And it can all be soundly refuted with an examination of the original languages and an examination of what the Bible is telling us came from Adam and, and what ancient history tells us. It can all be repudiated. Our point of view fully accounts for something which Weissman had himself professed, but which Weissman could not explain. And that is how a serpent, an intelligent individual with its own order of things, and contrary to the order of God, was in the garden to seduce Eve in the first place. Our viewpoint, once all these things are studied, is the only point of view which is consistent with all scripture. And while Adamic men and women can sin, it does not make them Satan. And while sometimes devils appear to do well, that does not make them children of God. And we'll discuss that all further as we reach the appropriate points in Weissman's book. But for now, we are going to continue with page 21. Weissman says, it cannot conclusively be said that devil or Satan must mean the serpent, or that the serpent must be interpreted as the traditional concept of Satan. And we agree with that whole line. Therefore, quoting the book of Revelation, which states that old serpent called the devil and Satan is not definitive as to what the serpent is or can be called. And with that, we would disagree. Nor is it definitive as to who or what the devil or Satan is or can be called. Well, of course, the devil can be called a lot of things, right? The devil can be called a Negro or a Jew or a Mexican or an Arab. So I would kind of agree with that, too, but not in the way Weissman would expect. And I guarantee Weissman would not be able to answer me. He would not be able to refute what I'm saying. He can refute what these um, traditional Wesley Swift types said because they were wrong about certain things. But Weissman's not going to refute us. We can agree with the things that were good that he pointed out, but we can't agree with the, the lies and subterfuge he used to try to disprove to seed line, even when he admitted that the serpent was in the world, was intelligent, and had its own order of things. He admitted that we're right. But he says, it is only one of many usages of these terms. And of course, the enemy, you could be my personal enemy. We could have a disagreement, right? We could, have a, we could be soldiers in a foxhole. And maybe I shortchanged you 
or, or maybe I borrowed something I didn't return, or, or maybe I robbed something from you, and you consider me an enemy. Does that change the fact that we have the enemy who is a common enemy? No. The enemy is still the enemy. Even if you and I are personal enemies, we're still fighting against the enemy. And Weissman is not making that distinction in the language as it appears in the original Hebrew and Greek. He's exploiting it to try to prove to us that there is no the enemy. That's what he's doing. But if you and I are personal enemies in a foxhole in, in France and we're fighting the enemy, the enemy is still the enemy in spite of the fact that you and I have issues and that I might be your enemy. And Weissman's not making that distinction. He's exploiting the, the language, the obscurity of the translations to try to prove that that distinction isn't there, while it certainly is there in the original languages. So Weissman's a liar. So he goes on to say, if we say the serpent is a reptile, it cannot be said that the reptile always means the serpent. Well, of course not. Reptiles can be geckos. As other things are also called reptile. It is a generic or comprehensive term, like the term devil. Well, the term devil is specific when it's accompanied with the definite article. It's no longer a generic term when it's accompanied with the definite article and the context refers to a particular devil. It's no longer a generic term. Weissman's a liar. As we have explained here, there are many times when men can be, when men can be a Satan, meaning an adversary, or a devil, meaning an accuser. But frequently in Scripture, when the adversaries of God are referred to, they are called the Satan or the false accuser, terms which refer to specific entities. And the serpent of Genesis is equated in the Revelation to a specific Satan and a specific accuser. Weissman is lying by omission, by purposely failing to recognize this. The phrase Ho Diabolos is not generic. It represents a specific class of people. So Peter used a definite article where he warned Christians that Ho Antidicus Humon Diabolos, and Greek word order is a little strange, right? But that article refers to Antidicus, and it also refers to Diabolos. And that means your adversary, the devil. And that word umon is stuck right in the middle of the two nouns. And that's the way Greeks did things. Their word order was different. They bracketed the phrase so that it couldn't be misunderstood that ho antidicus, your adversary, was also ho diabolus, or the devil. Peter used a definite article when he made that warning. Your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter was certainly not referring to your flesh, but he was referring to fleshly devils. In fact, we mentioned in our last presentation where Luke identified a spirit demon with the words ho diabolus in Acts chapter 10. 
And if a spirit demon can be a devil, as that passage proves, then Weissman is dead wrong in his assertion that the devil is the flesh. If a spirit demon, spirit demons don't have flesh. If a spirit demon is a devil, then the devil is not just the flesh. Acts 10, 38. I think it's 38. I didn't write the verse down here, but it's around there. <laughs> Continuing with Weissman, unless you have something to add. Well, I was just going to say, so Peter was was clearly warning your adversary, you know, all of our adversaries, all whites, all Christians, the devil, that the devils are walking around trying to seek and destroy us, to devour us. He's clearly, you know, concerned about our people. He's warning us, watch out for these Jews. They're around everywhere looking to kill you or to destroy you. And that's absolutely clear in the book of Acts. That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what Peter's writing about. That's the story of the book of Acts. Paul was constantly being persecuted by Jews. They stoned him. They were trying to get the Romans to, to lock him up. They were trying to get the Romans to... to uh, and they followed him, didn't they? Town to town? Yeah. They, they followed Coming him. after him? They followed him from town to town in Greece. That They followed him from... from Thessalonica, from Lystra, from Derbe, trying to, um, they left Lystra and Derbe and followed them to Thessalonica, trying to persecute them there. They, they followed him out of Thessalonica. He had to leave and, and go back by a different route a few times or by an unexpected route. He was in Damascus. They were persecuting him in, in Damascus. He had to be let down over the wall in a basket. In ancient Damascus, they actually had houses built into the walls, so he was let down out of a window over the wall so that he didn't have to try to get out through the gates of the city where the Jews would see him. Yeah, he was persecuted constantly. And if anyone, you know, these days tries to help their race stand up, they will follow you town to town, this exact same thing, country to country, wherever you go to destroy you. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing going on. I, I was standing last year in a Walmart in Lynn Haven, which is a big popular Walmart, and a Jew walked by with a yarmulke on, and he looked at me, and as he passed me, he just said, hmm, you look familiar, like he was trying to warn me about something, and he kept going. So they must know who I am. I know they know who I am from my activities. Um, with the League of the South and Christogenier and other things. I, I've had a few confrontations in public places here with people that knew who I was. Um, it's not that I'm famous. It's just that all the, the progressives, the liberals, and the Jews all study that SPLC hate map and, and read all the articles about us in, in the media. So on the ADL side or whatever. So... That's the way it is. That's something that we still put up with to this day. It hasn't changed. Continuing with Weissman, where we are, we are still on page 21 of his book. He says, as to whether the serpent of Genesis 3 is a supernatural being or evil angelic entity, commonly called the devil or Satan, is another critical question. So he's basically refusing 
the description in the Revelation. And reading the description in the Revelation, you could go back to all the parables and sayings of Christ. And it's it shouldn't be hard to figure out. It really shouldn't be, because that should send you back through the Old Testament history. And we're going to decode these things, right? But we're, well, when we get to Weissman's subsection here on the serpent, we're going to really take a good look at this. But he, he has a, um, this title, this chapter title is The Serpent. He has a subtitle. I forget exactly how he worded it. Just a little further on in this chapter that there's a subtitle under which he talks about fallen angels. And, and then we're going to really get on with this. So he's questioning whether or not the serpent of Genesis 3 is a supernatural being or evil angelic entity. And he says the satanic seed line proponents insist that it is so. And I would say that, no, I don't insist that it is so. It had to be a man here on earth that could seduce Eve. However, he says, but such a proposition has no support in the Pentateuch, which has no reference at all to these terms, as the Bible scholar George Lamsa, citing his book Old Testament Light, with which we already already also disagreed, as the Bible scholar George Lamsa states, and now he's going to quote George Lamsa, and it says, the term Satan or devil was not known to the early Hebrews, and that's bullshit, nor does it occur in the early books of the Bible. Evidently, these terms were later used when the Israelites came in contact with the people who believed in two gods, the god of good and the god of evil. The Babylonians and the Persians accepted the doctrine of dualism with two powers, good and evil. Now, Weissman continues, and he says, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and, and these are the promises of obedience, uh, the blessings of obedience, and the curses for disobedience, right? And Weissman is also taking these out of context, but I'll continue with his little paragraph here. He says, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, we read that God was known to cause every type of evil and problem, social, political, economical, agricultural, and personal. It is plainly obvious that upon reading such verses that the early Hebrews were not dualists. Thus, Moses and the early patriarchs would not have thought of a supernatural entity of evil when they wrote the Genesis account of the serpent. Now, we left one sentence short. The end, We left off one sentence short of the end of this paragraph, and we'll continue that below as we proceed. But first, we must address this statement, which Weissman attributes to George Lamsa. First, we are not dualists. We do not believe in a wicked power that is somehow equal to the power of God. We do not believe in a spiritual Satan who somehow rules over the lives of men in the sense of a supernatural spirit. 
There is a spiritual Satan which rules over the lives of men. It is every idea and concept that we hear in the media, that we hear expressed every day by the world. That's basically spiritual Satan. But it doesn't come out of the mouths of a, of a ghost. It comes out of the mouths of Jews and whites who, who are imbued with, with this Jewish worldly philosophy. Liberty, fraternity, equality, um, diversity, all of these ways that the Jews have infected our society. That's a spiritual Satan. Our Satan is very real and very tangible. It's not just a spook, although every spook is a Satan. I'm sorry. <laughs> spook is an American slang term for a <laughs> Negro. In the New Testament, men and women were indeed vexed and even possessed by demons, which were wicked spirits. And we have shown already last week that in the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the existence of those demons was recognized. And men who were taken to idolatry worshipped such demons. Furthermore, another word translated as devil also referred to a hairy goat, and the Greeks used that same Hebrew word to describe men who were half-goat and who were given to revelry and sexual promiscuity. And evidently, as it is described in those same books of Moses, people were also worshiping those. Job is an early book of the Bible. The circumstances in which it was written, the descriptions of the surrounding tribes, and the genealogy of one of its principal characters, who was named Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the kindred of Ram, all date the life of Job to the early judges period. Yet in Job, Satan is indeed used with a definite article to denote a particular adversary and not just a personal enemy of Job himself. So George Lamza, like Charles Weissman, is also a liar. Before the time of David and long before the Babylonian exile, Satan's demons and earthly devils or satyrs were all mentioned in scripture. Now Weissman continues with this lie and he says, but the Hebrew theology changed at the Babylonian exile. Really? So the Bible is just a roll of toilet paper. That's all it is. If you believe the Hebrew theology changed at the Babylonian exile, you don't really believe in the veracity of scripture. All of the prophets that were after the Babylonian exile, Zechariah, Zechariah didn't believe the same thing Moses believed. Daniel was a prophet of the Babylonian exile. He was exiled in Babylon. Did Daniel not believe the same thing Moses believed? Or does Weissman not really believe in Daniel? After this claim that Hebrew theology changed in the Babylonian exile, Weissman goes on to shoot himself in the head, and he says, in pre-exilic Hebrew thought, thought, it's only thought, it's not the word of God, it's only thought, right? The figure of Satan was entirely unknown. 
the absolute monotheism of normative Hebraism, affirmed that there was only one divine power, one God, and in purposed refutation of the dominant dualism of the day, that he was the creator of both light and darkness, the source of evil as well as good, citing Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 and 7. But to the popular Hebrew mind of that day, in other words, the Hebrew Bible is only representing what is popular. It's not the word of God, right? It's only what's popular at that time. That's how Weissman's writing about the Bible. So you got to ask yourself, is this damned clown really a Christian? But to I was just going to say that. <laughs> But to the popular Hebrew mind of that day, dualism seemed to solve conveniently one of the baffling problems of existence, the problem of good and evil. And so, contrary to the tenets of official Hebraism, evolved the figure of Satan, patterned, obviously, after the Zoroastrian power of evil, Ahriman. Actually, Satan never had any place in the theology of normative Hebraism. And he's citing an encyclopedia of religion, edited by some turkey named Virgilius Firm, F-E-R-M, and published in 1945. First, to believe this is to believe that our Bibles are a lie. That post-exilic, meaning after the Babylonian exile, post-exilic Hebrew scriptures are worthless because they adopted concepts which they borrowed from pagan nations, and that the New Testament is worthless for that same reason. This is not really a synagogue of Satan. Jesus only copied the Babylonians and the Persians. Should we really believe that? <laughs> is that really the case? So essentially, Charles Weissman is just as much of a Jew as the average Rabbi Shekelstein, because to him, the Bible is not scripture. It is not the word of God, but rather it is some sort of politically manipulated ploy. No wonder Weissman dismisses or corrupts many of the words of Christ in his assault on two seed lines. He doesn't really believe the scriptures. It's just a political. Yeah, he's course. revealed himself that yeah. he's not really a Christian then. He's not. That he's so wise. He's such a genius. He's figured out that he knows it all, setting himself up as like a new prophet or something. Well, well, like Paul said in sort of different words, pretending to be wise, he became a clown. He's a clown pretending to be wise. Wise man. Pretending to be wise, he's a clown. He's not a Christian. The recognition of a tangible Satan is not the recognition of a divine power. And the recognition of demons, something which Moses himself also recognized, as we have proven, does not necessitate any profession that demons are also divine. Even if in their own use of the term, the ancient Greeks were referring to what they considered to be lesser gods. A demon to the Greeks was a lesser god, a small g god. But in reality, Weissman is creating straw man arguments by which 
he will ultimately foist his devil is the flesh heresy, persuading us that we are all the same because there is no such things as devils in the flesh. We believe that there are devils in the flesh, that there are people in the flesh walking around who are always naturally opposed to God. Their character, their innate character, is that their, opposi their opposition, that they're opposed to God and Christ. They really hate God. They hate Christ. They are devils in the flesh. Where Weissman wants to ultimately convince us that the flesh is the devil. But the flesh is not the devil, even though there are devils in the flesh. So he continues lying, and he says, there, is, there also is little that can be used to support an evil supernatural being called Satan in the Old Testament. The Satan in Job never had any power of its own to afflict Job. And we will address this momentarily. Rather, this Satan asked God that certain things be done to him, and God did them. And he's studying Job chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. <clears throat> when God asked this Satan where he came from, he said he came from walking up and down in the earth. He did not say he was cast out of heaven, but inferred he was some man who was simply an adversary of Job and God. And Weissman admitted our point where he added and God there. Because we would agree that the real Satan is some man walking up and down on the earth. And there's a whole bunch of them. Even at Job's time, there were millions and millions of them. Even at Job's time, walking up and down on the earth, who were adversaries of Job and God. That's the key there. And Weissman admitted it again. He admitted it, but he's too, he thinks he's so smart that he's too stupid to realize he admitted it. But here again, Weissman is lying. In Job chapter 1, Satan had complained that God protected Job. So, Satan challenged God and said, But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. Imagine the local Jew at a synagogue praying this about you. And that's exactly what happened with Job. In response to that challenge, we read, And... The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of Job. So the Sabians, okay, Satan just rode across the border to the land of the Sabians, which was just east of where Job was, and he got a gang of, of horsemen of robbers to raid Job's village. He promised them that there were a lot of hot blondes and a lot of gold and other booty that they would be able to get there, and they were more than happy to do it. So the Sabians, a formerly Semitic tribe, immediately raided Job's estate. They were formerly Semitic because they were already Arabs by this time. They were already mixed. And that word Arab could originally mean even white tribes that mixed with other white tribes, as well as with the Canaanites and the other races. So the Sabians by Job's time were already Arabs, and uh, 
they immediately raided Job's estate. Then where it says in verse 16, that the fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. That is only how one of Job's servants himself had interpreted the event. That's the words of the servant. Then, in turn, the Chaldeans raided Job's estate. Now, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians at this time were, were Chaldeans. So the Chaldeans raided Job's estate. So the same Satan that got the, the, the um, Sabians to raid Job's estate went and got himself a bunch of Chaldeans to do the same thing. Then in Job chapter 2, Satan is still vexed by Job's righteousness in spite of what Job had suffered. And Satan once again challenged God. But where God said, although thou moved me against him to destroy him without cause. We only see an admission that all things are in the hands of God, despite, in spite of the fact that this Satan was an adversary to God. All things are still in God's hands. So Satan challenged God again, and we read, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job sore with boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took upon him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Satan, not God, had smitten Job with boils. And that does not make Satan a god, but rather, even the sorcerers of Egypt could turn staffs into snakes before Moses and Aaron. We do not know how Satan smote Job with boils. Maybe Satan posed as a medical doctor and gave Job a vaccination. Who the hell knows? We're not told how it happened. <laughs> but Job was smitten with boils. So Weissman tells only half the story, and he refuses to see that Satan is a permanent... I mean, he admitted Satan was an enemy of God, but that Satan is a permanent adversary to God. Satan can't change. He's always, no matter what he does, going to be an adversary to God. Why? Weissman doesn't answer that. And he doesn't see that this is an account of how Satan challenged God to test the fate of Job, and God accepted the challenge, if for no other reason than we may have this record and learn from the fate of Job. This Weissman's telling half the story. Satan is a man walking up and down in the earth. But why is Satan Satan? Why didn't God tell Satan, repent and love your brother? Why didn't God tell Satan that? You're a bad boy. You better repent and love your brother and not hurt Job. And don't be jealous. Don't covet Job's wife and don't covet Joel's, Job's goods. Why didn't God give Satan the Ten Commandments right there and make him repent so that Satan's not Satan anymore? There's a lot that Weissman can't answer that he just avoids. I guess he expects that his readers aren't going to challenge him. A bastard can't change. Right, a bastard can't change. That was Euripides wrote, I believe it was Euripides, it might have been a Aeschylus, I, I get the two confused, they were both 
tragic poets of the 5th century BC, wrote that a bastard is forever the enemy of the true-born. The Greeks realized that. Why can't we realize that? Why the hell can't we accept this ancient knowledge and understand it for what it is? Because a bastard is never going to be the enemy, the, 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 the friend or, or kind to the true born. The bastard is always going to be the enemy of the true born. It might take a long time to come out. I'm sure it took Cain a couple of years to kill Abel. It didn't happen the next day. On page yeah. 23. So, so Bill, also, um, I'm sorry. sorry, I just wanted to really quickly say in Job, um, we can see that the children of Israel had only recently come into that area. So there'd be a lot of jealous people, you know, other nations around who would be asking, you know, why has Yahweh shown these people so much favor? And uh, the Jews could play on that and bring in the tribes, you know, where um, they are challenging Yahweh. You know, if, if you didn't favor them so much, they would turn on you quickly. When you read between the lines of what it's saying, where Satan's challenging Yahweh. Well, well, right. And some of Job's friends may have been Edomites because Job was evidently in the south, in the south of Judah <coughs> on the border of Edom. And, and that's a possibility. And it's difficult to determine who precisely they all were because it, it's just not enough information is given. But where we have the, um, the, the son of Ram, and we put that together with the circ political circumstances expressed in Job and the geographical information that we do have, it's clear that he lived early in the judges period in the south of Judah. And Job was probably of the tribe of Judah. Yeah, he'd be surrounded by a lot of jealous Edomites. Well, well yes, that's very plausible. People that were being um, slowly pushed out of the land by Israel. And, and a lot, there were still some of them there. And, and that's clear in the other books. In, in the historical books from that same period, it's clear in the book of Judges. On page 23 of Weissman's book, he says, It is clear from Scripture that all the evil problems, afflictions, and troubles of a supernatural nature or origin that came upon Israel in the Old Testament were done by God, not a supernatural Satan or devil. What, then, would be the need or purpose for the existence of such an entity and of of course, we do not claim that the devil is supernatural. We know that the devil is representative of a race of people who are opposed to God. And the revelation describes that in this race of fallen angels, which we don't even think fell out of heaven. They didn't necessarily fall from the sky. If you look at the ancient Akkadian and Sumerian myths and fables and inscriptions, you'll see that heaven was often a term used to describe seats of government and authority as opposed to earth, which represented in the same contexts, which represented the common people 
who worked the land and, and made their living from the land. So, if angels fell from heaven, yet Satan was a man walking up and down in the earth, if angels fell from heaven, that only describes a race of individuals that the scriptures, the Adamic race of the scriptures only calls angels, this race of individuals who had fallen from the grace of God and were therefore um, put off to be punished by him. And then Adam was created in order for God to establish his kingdom on earth, ultimately, through Christ. So that's what the scriptures are teaching. And we don't learn that until we get to the New Testament. This isn't explained until we read the parables and the revelation of Christ. Then it's explained thoroughly by him. And that's because he said that things were kept secret from the foundation of the world. Moses didn't have it all to record it all. It wasn't all revealed to Moses. It was the purpose of Christ to withhold that information until he came. Matthew chapter 13. And we'll get to all that in, in future installments here. Within the context of Weissman's arguments, where Weissman said that all the evil problems, afflictions, and troubles of a supernatural nature came from God. We would certainly agree with that, but not all of the afflictions and troubles which Israel suffered were supernatural. Here, Weissman cites support for support for that statement. Um, chapters 42, 45, and 54 of Isaiah, chapters 11 and 18 of Jeremiah, Proverbs 16, and the 90th Psalm. And I'm going to actually quote all them and discuss them briefly. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 24, which Weissman cites, it says, Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, I'll use the King James language here, did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. So let's put that verse on the shelf. Somebody gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to robbers. In Isaiah chapter 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And that's fine. And we'll put that on a shelf. And then in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 16, Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals in the fire, and it brings forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. And we'll put that on a shelf. Jeremiah 11, 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, speaking of the people of Jerusalem, which they shall not be able to escape, and though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken to them. And finally, Jeremiah 18, verse 11. Now therefore, go to, speak to the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, 
Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now, every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Okay. First, an observation. None of the passages here forebode supernatural evil. What happened in these cases were the Assyrians and the Babylonians came into the land and destroyed it and took all of the inhabitants of the land hostage. That's what happened here. That's what all six of these passages are about. They're not about anything supernatural. I'm sorry, all five of these passages. There are only five of them. In reference to these five passages, Weissman does not even ask the identity of the spoilers and robbers. He uses them to try to prove that all evil comes from God, but that is not true. There is evil which God uses to affect his will in the world, which is evil in the eyes of men, but it's good in the eyes of God. Going back to our example of Cyrus, Yahweh said of him, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. Now to Yahweh, Cyrus's actions would be good, but if one were a conquered Babylonian or Assyrian, would they be good then? Of course not. If you were a Babylonian or an Assyrian being conquered by the Persians, you would think that Cyrus was evil. But if you were Yahweh, who prophesied about Cyrus 200 years before he did those things, Cyrus was doing Yahweh's will, and his actions were therefore good. So it's all a matter of perspective. Likewise, Yahweh told the children of Israel to kill all of the Canaanites, to drive them out of their lands. When they failed, he said in Numbers chapter 33, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in a land wherein you dwell. Where he also warned them in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we would see how they would be pricks in their eyes, where it said, And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, the Canaanites, the Edomites, whither they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I made with them. From that early time, the Canaanites were a source of vexation to the children of Israel. However, we understand that to be another manifestation of the enmity between the two seeds of Genesis 3.15, because the Canaanites are in part descended from Kenites and Rephaim and other races which were not of Adam. In Judges chapter 3, we see a list of the places where the Israelites failed to drive out the Canaanites, the Canaanites. So, when the children of Israel sinned to the point that they were put off in punishment, because it was those strangers that coaxed them into sin, as it says in Deuteronomy in that warning, 
When the children of Israel sinned to the point that they were put off in punishment, Yahweh used those other races and nations to effect that punishment. And every one of these scriptures, which Weissman has cited, relate to that punishment. While it is evil in the eyes of men, it is nevertheless good in the eyes of God, who said in Amos chapter 3, and Amos was writing around the same time that Isaiah was writing. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. There is evil which is only evil in the eyes of men. As Yahweh God uses wicked men, men who have no capacity to be anything but wicked, like the Satan in Job, to punish the good people, his people, when they sin. So, Weissman did not consider the nature of the robbers or the nature of the Canaanites or of any of the vehicles which Yahweh has employed to punish the children of Israel. The Babylonians were Chaldeans and Yahweh created them. The Assyrians were of Asher. They were Semites closely related to the Israelites and Yahweh created them. Yet Yahweh used Babylonians and Assyrians with which to punish the Israelites. Some men who sin have an opportunity for repentance. And here, Weissman himself also cited Psalm 90 in verse 3, where it says, Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men. Thou turnest man to destruction, meaning he puts them off in punishment and then asks them to repent. Satan, that Satan and Job never had any opportunity to be a Christian. Some men do not have an opportunity for repentance, and all they do is evil, even if Yahweh takes advantage of that and uses them for his will. And here Weissman also cited Proverbs chapter 16, where it says, The Lord has made all things for himself, yeah, even the wicked for the day of evil. These are the same entities who are used as a scourge against the children of Israel to correct them. He is using them as a scourge against the children of Israel today, as they are the flood which the serpent has sent out of its mouth in order to persecute the seed of the woman. But the wicked are never corrected. Instead, in Matthew chapter 25, we are informed that all of the so-called goat nations have their destiny in everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then in the Revelation and in the epistles of Jude and Peter, we see an entire class of people who face this same destiny. Jude and Peter both explained that these men who infiltrated Christian assemblies and corrupted them were ordained such a destiny before of old, but that they would be among Christian congregations taking advantage of Christians and their blessings. Yahweh certainly did make the wicked for the day of evil. Yahweh created the angels that left their first estate. And Yahweh must have foreseen 
what they would do after their rebellion. But their rebellion is not from God. And he cannot be blamed for their sin. So there is evil in the eyes of men. And then there is true evil, which is rebellion against God that cannot be repented of. The unforgivable sin of corrupting his creation, of race mixing. Paul explained that Esau could not inherit the blessing because he was a fornicator, a race mixer, in Hebrews chapter 12. So in the end, they shall all be destroyed. Two seed line is true, and Weissman is purposely obscuring the issues in order to keep it from men. But while Yahweh takes credit and responsibility for his creation, he himself cannot be blamed for their sins. He cannot be forced to accept the outcome of their sins. Therefore, for that reason, Paul had written in that same chapter of Hebrews, chapter 12, that if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father does not chasten? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, now chastisement is for correction. Chastisement isn't merely suffering. It's suffering from above in order that the son be corrected. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. It was Yahweh's purpose to correct Job, to allow Satan to punish Job for Job's correction. But Satan himself was not corrected in the process. At the end of the day, Satan was still Satan. He was still a devil walking up and down in the earth. Bastards have no opportunity for redemption. The bastard nations are all goats destined for the lake of fire. The same fate awaiting the devil and his angels. Once you realize that there are two different groups of nations or peoples in the world with different origins and different destinies, there is no choice but to admit that two seed line is true. Except for the sheep and the goats, we have not even discussed all the other parables and sayings of Christ which prove this, waiting to get to Weissman's discussion of some of them to bring the rest of them up. I don't know if you have anything to, yeah, to and the... add to that, but you're more than welcome. Now, it only proves that we are the children of Israel, that, you know, um, we are punished when we turn against God or race mix. It's the exact same thing. And it proves the veracity that, uh, you know, we are the same people as the people in the Old Testament. Absolutely. We, we accepted Christianity. When we accepted Christianity, we flourished. We spread out into other places all over the world from Europe and founded Christian nations and Christian societies. And then we returned to all of the idolatry and sins, which are constantly promoted by the Jew. Pornography, um, film and theater, which are basically idolatry, 
um, gambling and, and all of the other ills of society today, wars against each other, which were um, caused by the bankers, the acceptance of central banking itself, which is an acceptance of usury. Every dollar or pound which comes into society already demands interest, which is an abomination to God. To charge one's own people interest is an abomination, and that holds up throughout the prophets and also in the New Testament even if Christ used it as an example in a couple of parables, that doesn't mean that it's good. So we, we accepted all these sins which the devil offered us, and now look at what, the, what we're look at how we're being punished. It's inevitable that we are the children of Israel, and then that proves it. And these other races are being used as a scourge against us, and that the Jew is Satan because. It's very clear that the Jew is behind the open borders movement, the unbridled immigration into European lands. Uh, you, you don't have to go far to prove that, to prove who Satan is. Weissman did everything he could to prove Always the men. same group of people behind right. everything. Every single time, that's the meme now, right? Every single time. Weissman did everything he could to prevent people from seeing that. We yeah, all exactly. Have. He was protecting them. Yeah, absolutely protecting them. And all of his acolytes, Ted Weiland and, and Stephen Jones and James Brugman, all these people I talk about, that they're basically the old timers. And, and some of them are dead now or, or that they're a lot older than me, right? Like 20 years older than me. Weissman was the same age as my father, I think, or a couple of years older. But these men... A, a generation of so-called Christian identity teachers stopped people, most identity Christians, they stopped them from seeing the truth of two seed line. Two seed line has always been the minority among identity Christians. The British Israel crowd, they think the Jews are Judah. That the Arnold Murray crowd, that, that they Arnold Murray referred to Kenites, but he never really said that the Jews are the Kenites. And and he always obscured the message. Even though even though he proves proved that he understood it. The sad part is that Wesley Swift and Bill Gale and and even Compare, I believe, thought that the Satan that seduced Eve was a literal Satan that came down from heaven, an angel that came down from heaven and mated with her. And that's not true. But Clifton even argued in defense of that. But it's not true. And I couldn't really um, do anything serious to counter that until I did Pragmatic Genesis, I think, in 2013, 2014 was the first opportunity I had to really address that. And that's not even in, that's real. Most of that isn't even in writing, but hopefully I'll get to a Genesis commentary before I get to Weissman's age. I pray. <laughs> well, well, I yeah, hopefully you are willing. I appreciate you being here and that's for sure. But, my Genesis commentary is going to be spread across a, a whole series of all these other answers, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll be able to just cut and paste. Yeah. 
okay, well, well, thanks for joining me. And, and um, no worries. F- thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, and I look forward to the next one. Um, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of these Edomite Jew satyr bastards and all their other ilk. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. And and hopefully next week, maybe I, I meant to ask you today about your bit shoot and comments. And I, I, I failed to get there. I'm going to get there soon. I, I will. Maybe I'll try tomorrow morning or something. I, I've been a sort of laxative. Yeah, no worries. Like maybe I'll, at the end, I'll have a big list of questions. Great. Maybe, maybe I, I don't know. There's a lot of re- really strange parts to, to this book that are coming up. You've been warning me about them, and I'm starting to see some of them. Magic and Gnostics. Lots of twists and turns. Wow. Okay. Yahweh bless and... And witchcraft. Witchcraft. Yeah, we're witches and Gnostics. Praise Yahweh. Take care.